Well, you know, they won't like me for saying this, but Google's business model is what I consider a business model of deception. But anonymity is something that actually is never really protected by law. So in some sense, from a legal standpoint, you have a right to privacy, but you don't have a right to anonymity, not at least by default. Yeah, this is the uh, online safety uh, bill. Although I guess yeah. it's now the Online Safety Act because it actually passed here miraculously somehow. Which is worrying. Yeah, uh, yeah which is really, really, really big problem. So in some sense, it's almost like you know handing a you know um, loaded gun to a kid because you know these people. Okay, I'm not saying they're kids. I'm saying you know they don't understand technology very well. So it's, so it's handing a loaded gun to these people, uh, and hopefully they don't pull the trigger. Everyone, it's David Bumble back with a very special guest, Andy. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on the channel. Andy, it's great to have you here because this is a really important topic. It's 2024, and I want to know: firstly, is it possible to be private? Why should I be private? And you know, it just seems governments are overreaching. There's all these kind of horror stories, and hopefully, you're going to shed some light on this. But before we get there, could you just tell the audience who you are, because they m might not know who you are, and sort of your journey to creating this amazing product? Sure, happy to. Yeah, my name is uh, Andy Yen. I'm the founder and CEO of Proton. We're a privacy and security company, best known for two products, actually. Uh, you know, ProtonMail, original uh, product, and also ProtonVPN, that is now one of the widely, most widely used VPN services out there. Uh, we've, of course, also expanded. We now have Proton Drive, an encrypted file storage service. Uh, also Proton Pass, a password manager as well. Uh, so I think, you know, been in the privacy space for close to 10 years now. Uh, my background is a bit different. Uh, a lot of people, you know, uh, go from business school into creating yep. you know, tech companies. Uh, I'm a scientist. I did my PhD on something called uh, supersymmetry, the type of uh, particle physics. So mm -hmm. uh, actually, uh, the company really began as a group of scientists working at CERN. So it, in some ways, uh, you know, spun out of the CERN cafeteria. Uh, CERN is the uh, European Organization for Nuclear Research. So we were really into the hard sciences. And people always find it weird, you know, proton coming out of CERN. But yeah, exactly. uh, in fact, uh, that was actually where the web was born. Yeah, uh, Sir Tim Berners-Lee yeah. uh, invented the web, uh, HTTP protocol, actually when he was working at CERN. So I think the intersection between science, technology, uh, you know, internet, uh, privacy, it's always been there. And uh, as a scientist, you want to work on the hard problems, the you know, uh, important problems, but also the problems that are meaningful to huma humanity and society. So I think this is what got us onto this journey, you know, at this point, almost 10 years ago. Yeah, because Proton is very different to other companies, right? Have you got, you? I mean, I know a lot of the answers, but just for the audience so that everyone's aware of this, are you venture capital funded? No, actually, Proton took a very different journey. Uh, you know, at the very beginning, it was an open source project that was, uh, you know, completely funded out of our own pockets uh, with support from friends and family, other scientists at CERN. You know, the, the first thousand users of ProtonMail actually were CERN scientists using it internally, you know, uh, within uh, the research lab. And what we did was we actually decided to make the service public. So we opened up to the world and immediately we saw on the first couple of days, you know, 10,000 people signing up. Uh, and that to me was, a, oh, wow. It, it was a moment that made you realize, uh, you know, kind of the things that I wanted, which is being able to go online and have control over my data. This is something that maybe more people in the world actually want. Uh, and the way that we started things off is uh, we actually raised money through the community. So it was an Indiegogo campaign in summer 2014 uh, that raised around half a million euros from over 10,000 people. Uh, I remember one of the donors was, uh, you know, Steve Wozniak. Uh, oh, and wow. He, yeah, and, and he actually made a big donation. So we had to send him a t-shirt. And, you know, uh, so yeah, I, I can't tell you his address, but you know, you saw the house. It's, okay, yeah, that's probably Steve's house. Uh, so that was how it began. Uh, so it was a community-driven project from the beginning. And today, uh, we also have, uh, you know, no VC investors today. Uh, and I think that is quite important 
to being able to allow us to always put users first. So I just want to be transparent with everyone who's watching. This video is not sponsored by Proton, but Proton do sponsor my channel. So Andy, thanks very much for that. I, I'm confident having Proton as a sponsor because of my experience, but also because of what I've read from people who are in the industry for many, many years. Very famous book, this, Extreme Privacy, What It Makes to Disappear. Rec this book recommends Proton Mail. Other books that I like, Linux Basic for Hackers, recommends uh, Occupy the Web, who I interview a lot on my channel, recommends Proton VPN, Proton Mail, and How to Hack Like a Ghost also recommends it. So if you want to like disappear or you know not have people following you, Proton comes highly recommended and has been great in my experience. So I don't have to tell you this, Andy, but a lot of people in the cybersecurity space, I mean, it's just three examples there, and the sort of privacy space recommend your company. But this book also makes a very big point. Mikko, who I've interviewed as well, says privacy is dead, right? So let's perhaps we can talk about that and then we'll come back to you know the, the services that you offer. Is it possible to have privacy in 2024? And I want to make this distinction between privacy and being anonymous because I think you, you've, I've heard you mention there's a difference in the past and I'd like to get your take on that. So can I be anonymous? Can I be pri private? But let's focus on privacy. So over to you. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think actually a deep question, right? You, know, you yeah. could write a PhD thesis just on this topic <laughs> you know, alone. Um, I think maybe the best way to answer this question is to you know um, go back to a you know um, a quote from a person that we all know loves privacy so much. Uh, you know, Mark Zuckerberg. <laughs> right? You know, um, <laughs> back in the uh, early uh, 2010s, you know, he had a famous quote where he said, "You know, um, privacy is no longer a social norm." Right? Yeah. Uh, and actually, uh objectively speaking, he was probably correct. Uh, you know, as much as, you know, we despise that statement, uh, yep. he was right. People had gone to social media, they were sharing, you know, it was now the sharing economy. It was kind of a different world. And then that kind of quote always stuck in the back of my mind. And that was one of my motivations for, you know, uh, you know, creating uh, Proton, because I said, you know, I want to build ProtonMail to prove Zuck wrong, right? Yeah, uh, and then, <laughs> I like and, that. And then you fast forward a few more years, and I think this is maybe around 2019 or so. This is, you know, after Cambridge Analytica, after all the different, you know, issues that he had. He goes on his Facebook page and he makes a post, right? And, 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 he, and the post basically says, you know, if I were to summarize it in one sentence, it was, you know, privacy is at the heart of all we do at Facebook. Right. So, it's, <laughs> of course, no one believed it, right? And, and, and you shouldn't believe it. Uh, but I think what that really shows is you have somebody that completely doesn't believe in privacy, thinks this is gone. And then within a span of, uh, you know, uh, seven, eight years, he's done a complete 180. You know, he turned it completely around. Uh, so what happened, right? Uh, you know, what happened in, in those seven, eight years? You know, why, why did this, you know, multi-billionaire suddenly change his mind? And I think what changed his mind was consumers. Uh, you know, people like you and me, other people who are watching, uh, you know, this channel, uh, people started thinking, I'm not comfortable with what Facebook is doing with my data. So Mark changed his mind. You know, Zuck changed his mind not because, you know, he loves privacy or because, you know, he suddenly decided to, to you know, grow some moral qualms about what he's doing, right? He changed his mind because in a capitalist economy, consumers are the most powerful force. And when consumer attitudes change, he has no choice. And so to go to the question of, you know, does privacy exist? I think the answer actually is privacy exists if we want it to exist. Because if we as individuals, as society, say that privacy is required and we demand that, actually the big tech companies, no matter how big they are, who are servicing us, will have no choice but to bend to our will. So, uh, you know, so this is why I'm optimistic, right? 
Yeah, so, so I, think, I, think, I think that's the answer to that one. And then I can get into, you know, privacy and anonymity afterwards. Yeah, I've, I've got to say, I'm going to be pessimistic because like um, I've heard you say things about Apple and other companies as well, but you go for it and then I will come, we'll come back to that. So yeah, let's talk about, you know, privacy and anonymity because this is a very, very important topic as well. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maybe this is showing my academic side, right? But let's take it from the, you know, um, from the legalistic uh, perspective first. You know, uh, privacy. This is a right that is enshrined by law. Almost any company, any any country you go to has you know a privacy law, right? Switzerland, it's it's actually in the UN, you know, Declaration of Human Rights. But anonymity is something that actually is never really protected by law. So, in some sense, from a legal standpoint, you have a right to privacy, but you don't have a right to anonymity, not at least by default, right? Uh, so there's a legal difference. But let's talk about uh, you know what it takes. Well, privacy is kind of an expectation that you sort of have when you give data online. It's something that you sort of expect all services to deliver for you. And in many cases, they're obligated to do so. But being anonymous, uh, this is not something that I would say most services provide. And being anonymous is also something that requires proactive action on your side, right? Uh, you know, being anonymous is very difficult. It's where you're seeing, uh, what services you're using, how you're hiding your IP address, uh, you know, um, how you're paying for things. Uh, it's actually almost a lifestyle that encompasses all areas of your life. So privacy, you can kind of get almost by default if tech companies are responsible, but anonymity is something you need to actively pursue and seek and defend yourself. And that makes it a much higher hurdle, uh, you know, to climb. Uh, and I think that's actually the difference, right? It's that, you know, there's, of course, a legal distinction, but there's also a distinction in terms of the effort involved and, you know, um, your responsibility towards it, right? You know, um, I would say privacy maybe is a responsibility of, if not the government, the tech companies that are out there servicing you, right? Who has anonymity? That's a personal responsibility, actually. Yeah, let's start from the beginning because I, uh, there'll be people watching this, you know, different stages. Some people, let's start with the most basic argument and then we'll go to like really hardcore technical perhaps. Um, I don't care that the government is watching me because I've got nothing to hide is something that people often <laughs> say, like, I've got nothing to hide, yeah. so why do I care? Well, um, you know, each time someone tells me that, uh, what I ask them is, okay, if you have nothing to hide, would you mind giving me your email password? And, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and in the past 10 years, I haven't had a single taker, right? Uh, so clearly they do have something to hide. Uh, and, and I think, um, so So I, I think that's why there's a policy there. Because as much as you say, I've got nothing to hide, at the end of the day, I think privacy is innate to being human. It's the reason you know we have curtains uh, on our windows, locks on our doors. It's the reason you close the, do the door, hopefully, when you go to the restroom, right? Uh, yeah, I think um, being human means having a need for privacy. And you cannot really separate the two. So even the ones who say that doesn't hide uh, is simply not true. I mean, the other concern is, okay, let's say I think, okay, I want to be private. But, you know, it's impossible because... You know, it means I have to get rid of Google. There's no alternative. Or I have to get rid of Facebook. There's no alternative. So what do you say to that? And then let's, I want to get to government overreach, perhaps. I would say there's a spectrum. I think being someone that cares about privacy doesn't mean that you don't go on social network, right? Uh, you know, uh, being a private person doesn't mean that, you know, you're a hermit living out in the woods, uh, you know, camping it off the grid. And the important thing to keep in mind is privacy really is a spectrum because in our life, there are certain things we want to make public. Uh, certain things that we're very happy to share. And there's also certain things that we want to keep to ourselves. And the real issue is the internet, because of the business model and the way that it was designed and who controls it today, uh, was really not built in a way to make that distinction. 
Uh, but that distinction, if you go back to the pre-internet age, has always existed. Uh, and what protocol is trying to do is to bring back that option, right? You know, we want to go from an internet where by default everything is public to an internet where by default everything is private, and you can choose what you actually want to make public versus it being the other way around. But what's the, how's, the, how's the business model different for like Google versus what you're doing? Well, Google's business model, if I'm to be, you know, very, very blunt, and, you know, maybe... No, they please be like, blunt. Don't, don't, <laughs> yeah, uh, you, can, you can say what you want, so rather just yeah. give it to us, please. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, they won't like me for saying this, but Google's business model is what I consider a business model of deception. Uh, what do I mean by that? Well, Google is giving you a free service, and they're hoping, maybe even praying, that you don't actually read the privacy policy, because if you did, you would run for the hills, right? Uh, so that's the, that's the actual basis of their business is that you don't actually you know, understand how they're abusing your data. And that's what allows your business to continue. Uh, and people say, well, Google gives me a free service. But in reality, exactly. it's not actually free. Uh, you know, what they're actually doing is they're making you pay with something that is actually your most intimate, most valuable, most sensitive data. Uh, so it's not free. And well, Proton is also a free service, but it's a freemium business model, right? Uh, and that means that you know, if you want more, you just you pay for it. And I think there's more and more people in the world who say, Given the choice between you know completely losing my privacy, giving all my data to Google, and just having it potentially exposed out there, versus paying you know uh, four euros per month uh, to ensure that that data belongs to me and is protected by end-to-end -end encryption, which means that you know literally no one else has my keys, and that's four euros. A lot of people will say that maybe that's a good deal, and I think this is kind of uh, you know what has changed that has allowed Proton as a business model to succeed, and it's really a much more honest business model because when you use Google service you're not Google's customer, right? What you actually are is the product they're selling to the real customer, which is the advertiser. And in Proton's case, actually, the only reason Google pay us is to protect their privacy. So we don't have any financial incentive to do anything other than that. And that alignment of interest, I think, is very important because it ultimately leads to better products that are more responsive to the user needs. But it's too hard to, 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 to live a lifestyle of privacy. You know, it's all or nothing. Is that right, or? No, I don't think it's all or nothing. I think there's you know, small incremental things that you can do that already make a big difference. I'll give you the most basic example. Uh, let's say you switch from Gmail uh, to you know, um, ProtonMail. Well, why is Gmail valuable for Google? You know, people often don't ask this question because they think about Google is all about search. Uh, but Google isn't about search. What Google is actually about is your identity, your profile, because that's what is actually being sold. So if you use Gmail, you're logged in all the time. That means every single website that runs Google Analytics or Google Ads, which by the way is 80% of the internet, uh, is going to be able to track you. And Google can associate all your activity across the entire web or 80% of the web, everything on YouTube, everything on Android, everything you do on the Play Store, you know, everything um, on Google Maps. And all that gets tied to your real-life identity and your profile, which actually is your Gmail account, because that is uh, your Google account. Uh, so... If you make the simple act of, say, switching from Gmail to ProtonMail, actually, at that point, you disappear because you no longer have a profile on Google. Google no longer has an entity they can attach all your activity to. Uh, and you've simply taken yourself out of their surveillance system. Uh, and that, you know, that's just changing one service. So I think there's you know, all these little things that you can do that um, even if they're very small, they collectively make a very, very big difference, right? And, and you see just getting rid of Gmail and not being logged in all the time when you're using Google services or using the internet, that's already you know, taking a huge amount of data and making it inaccessible to Google. So then I'll just use Apple, right? Because they're better. Uh, well, you know, um, <laughs> it's funny you mentioned Apple, right? Because, because you know, big tech companies, they all, well, what they're trying to do right now is something I call privacy washing, which is okay. if you're not going to be private, the next best thing 
so you can do is change what privacy means. Uh, so, you know, when Google talks about privacy, and they talk about it at every single Google I.O., it's, it's like the main theme of every single talk, right? But if you look at what Google actually means when they say privacy, well, the definition that they're actually giving is, we're going to give you more options on how we abuse your data. That's what privacy <laughs> means to Google, right? Uh, and Apple has this little definition. Apple's definition is, we want to be the only ones who can abuse your data. So, you know, Apple says, we're going to disable third-party cookies, third-party trackers. And my response is, well, I'm not so concerned about the third-party trackers, right? It's the first-party ones that actually are, are a lot worse. And the true definition of privacy is actually no one can, you know, uh, no one can abuse your data, period. Uh, this is what Proton believes in. And I think that's a very fundamentally different definition than what big tech takes. So, you know, Apple, for all its privacy, you know, um, let's say uh, advertising, at the end of the day, what they're really trying to do with all their privacy moves is lock out third parties from being able to monetize their users. Yeah, Facebook lost a lot of money, didn't they, when, when Apple made some of yeah, those changes? Yeah, yeah. And, and Apple's collecting that money back by running their own ad business, which is you know, one of the fastest growing uh, segments of you know, new revenue for the, for the company. Because Apple looks and says, hey, you know, um, Google's making uh, you know, almost $100 billion, you know, uh, or more on this. Uh, why can't we get a piece of the action? Uh, and uh, they do want to get a piece of that action. I have to ask you this because I know people want to want to know the answer to this. There was this famous example of someone in France, um, an, an activist, I think it was envi environmentalist or something. Uh, you can give us the details. And then Proton had to give the IP address or something to the French authorities. Can you talk us through that and tell us some of the updates since then? Yeah, well, I think uh, unless your company is based on a boat 15 miles offshore, uh, you're subject to some laws, right? And there is no company in the world that can, you know, ignore court orders. And you know, in this case, what was I think, you know, quite uh, unfortunate was these folks had uh, committed some fairly serious crimes, you know, uh, destruction of property, uh, you know, breaking and entering things that uh, you know uh, do pass the you know criminal statutes uh, here in Switzerland. Uh, and if you are to you know uh, break the law, uh, well, Switzerland isn't a place that says okay, anything goes. And privacy also is not the equivalent to, you know, um, not being able to get persecuted, right? Uh, you know, if you break the law, you have still broken the law, even if you use a privacy service. So in these situations, uh, you know, when Proton does get a court order, you know, uh, we do have to comply. Now, what is interesting, though, about Proton in our Swiss jurisdiction is there's a question of what compliance actually means. And, you know, what compliance means in Switzerland is very different from compliance in the U.S. versus compliance in, say, Russia or China. And in Proton's case, you know, compliance actually means, you know, uh, we cannot give up, you know, uh, any of the content because all the content is zero access encrypted. We don't have access to it. Uh, so in fact, you know, the, the police came to us. Uh, we're actually trying to find, uh, you know, the content of the messages to try to, you know, find incriminating evidence. And they didn't get any of that, uh, you know, um, from us. Now, uh, what they can get, of course, uh, through services is, you know, if, if we're, if we're uh, given a court order to log IP addresses, that's always possible. And actually, David, you're a network engineer, so you know, you know, TCP IP, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, you know, exactly. if you're making it, if you're opening a connection, uh, well, whichever service you connect to, whether it's Proton or somebody else, is always going to be able to see the, the end of that connection, uh, TCP IP. Exactly. Uh, so in that case, of course, we have the IP address. Um, now, people really, you know, we got a lot of heat for giving the IP exactly. address. Yeah. Uh, That's but, why I have to but, ask the question, because I think it's still out there, right? Yeah, Sorry, go yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, but, it, but it's quite interesting because uh, no one actually looked at the case in detail. In this particular case, uh, the offense was breaking, entering, and, you know, squatting in a private home and, and, actually, and actually destroying it, right? Uh, so the police didn't need the IP to know who they were. Uh, wow. You know, if it's a squatter, you obviously know where they're squatting, right? Exactly. Um, so what the police were actually after uh, was the contents of the email. 
which uh, we could not actually provide. So in the end, I would say if these folks had been using Gmail or something else, probably they're in jail today, right? Uh, probably it would have been a lot worse. Uh, but you know, they got from us an IP, which a GDTCB IP. You know, uh, you know, we we have to give up. But uh, you know, um, it didn't really lead to their arrest because they already known. And the kind of the, the ironic part about this uh, story as well, that's kind of interesting, is we have a VPN service called ProtonVPN, right? Uh, and email is generally regulated as a communication tool. So, you know, most countries in the world have, you know, something on the books, uh, you know, for email. But VPN is considered a different service entirely. And Switzerland has, you know, kind of an interesting quirk in our law, which is that a, v- a VPN service doesn't have logging obligations and also cannot be compelled by any court to actually start logging. So, uh, you know, the irony is, had they been using ProtonVPN or, you know, um, or, or Tor or, or, or doing proper OPSEC, uh, this wouldn't, they wouldn't have even gotten the IP from them, right? Uh, so, yeah, I, I think um, it goes back to threat models, right? You got to understand your threat model and you have to understand, you know, um, if you want to be completely anonymous and traceable online, you need to take some proactive action. So either use a VPN, use Tor, or do something. But you, know, you cannot just connect regularly and expect to be anonymous by default. So let's get a bit technical. Why couldn't you access the emails? Well, the emails actually are encrypted uh, you know, in a way that uh, the data gets encrypted in, a, in such a way that we cannot you know, decrypt it. So th- let me kind of give you an example. Right? Let, let's say the email comes in. Uh, well, it actually gets encrypted by the user's public key. And to decrypt that, uh, you know, we need to have access to the private key. But the private key... Uh, it's not something that Proton has access to, right? It's, it's stored in a way that we actually cannot have access to or cannot decrypt it. So because we don't have the other part of the key pair, uh, we are mathematically unable to actually, you know, uh, you know, break the encryption. Uh, and I think this is very important because laws can change. Swiss law today is very, very protective. And a funny thing is, you know, after the French activists uh, on the French, you know, criminal case, uh, we actually went to court against the uh, Swiss government, and we won in court. So actually, now the now the obligations are different in Switzerland. But new laws can always come around. You know, uh, we could get a crazy election in Switzerland, get somebody crazy in power, and they could you know the next day mandate something crazy. Right? These things happen. What I tell people is, you know, uh, laws written by people changing all every every day, all the time. Uh, but the laws of mathematics, well, that never changes. In fact, so uh, the best protection I can give to users is actually to protect them not with Swiss law, but with mathematical law. Because no matter who gets elected, uh, the laws of math are not going to change. So if I want to send you an email, I'm encrypting it with your public key, right? And then you yes. can only yeah. decrypt it with your private key. Yes. And only you have your private key. So that that private key is held on your end device, right? You guys have no access to that. That's on the end device. And that's the only way it can be decrypted. Is that correct? Yes, yes, that's correct. But um, we also do something where, you know, let's say you change devices. We will help you transport, uh, you know, and distribute that that public key. But the way that it's done is that that public key is actually encrypted with your credentials, uh, which only you know. Your so private even, key you're talking about, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Private key, yes. So, Sorry, so, 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 I guess you know the, the way to kind of understand this is we don't have access to your private key because even when it is passing through our servers, it's actually encrypted before it comes to our servers. So uh, we're still able to do the key distribution for you, uh, but we have no way to actually uh, decrypt your private key because decrypting your private key requires your password, which we don't have the ability to actually obtain. So in other words, you couldn't give the French authorities, uh, but the, the French authorities, so let's talk about it first because I think this yeah. is a, yeah. there's a lot of like debate about this. The yeah. French authorities couldn't 
give you a subpoena or something to tell you to give them the data, right? They had to go through the Swiss authorities. Yes. So in such situations, uh, you know, you're required to actually go through the Swiss court system to, requ to request it. And if you request content, uh, all the content that we have is encrypted. And you request the key to decrypt it. Actually, we, all, we also don't have the key. You know, we couldn't hand over the you know, uh, plain text private key to allow you to decrypt it. So in general, uh, and there has been, at this point, hundreds of law cases uh, you know, um, through multiple jurisdictions that have referenced this, uh, you know, it's, there is no way a court can obtain from Proton the encrypted contents of people's inboxes. Uh, and this has been, you know, this has been tested in court uh, many, many times. I'm glad you said that because, I mean, I, I like what you said. You trust math or maths, but you don't trust the law. As in, like, you know, laws can change, right? But maths can't change. So, so that's great. I also see there's a huge, hasn't there been like a huge increase in the requests that you've been getting? Yes, uh, I think the requests have, of course, increased quite a bit over time. But you have to put this in context, right? Proton has, uh, you know, in the last 10 years gone from zero to now over 100 million accounts. Uh, so at 100 million accounts, you are going to get more requests. Uh, and that's just the you know, nature of it. But in the end of the day, you know, uh, even the requests come, we will not be able to hand over emails. It's just not possible for us to do because of the encryption that is utilized. I love the point you made because I think that got kind of lost in the, like the, the, the noise out there that the French authorities knew where these people were. Like getting the IP, IP address didn't really help because they knew where they were. That's quite hilarious, actually. So, but they were actually after the email, but they couldn't get it because you didn't have the, 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 the private key to decrypt it anyway. Yes, yes. And, and I think the power of this is uh, it goes beyond that, right? Because, um, of course, the authorities can't get something from us. But actually, if you think about cyber attacks and cyber breaches, this is actually the biggest risk that people face, right? The average user. Uh, is probably not going to be worried about some government coming after their data. It's most likely that it's going to be a hacker or you know, uh, some data breach that gets them. And the beauty of end-to-end -end encryption, the way that Proton has implemented it across all of our products, is it's not possible for an adversary, a hacker, or you know, uh, some sort of criminal. You simply can't steal from Proton uh, something that we ourselves do not have. Uh, and that's why you know, things that are inherently private are also inherently more secure. It's the two sides of the same coin. I'm glad you mentioned that. The concern, I'm based in the UK. The concern is, and you can please elaborate, what's, the, what's this crazy law in the UK? <laughs> yeah, this is the uh, online safety uh, bill. Although I guess yeah. it's now the Online Safety Act because it actually passed you know, miraculously somehow. Which is worrying. Yeah, uh, yeah which is a really, really, really big problem. So what it's basically doing is it's giving the US, uh, the UK regulator, uh, in this case a, a body called Ofcom, the ability to mandate that tech companies uh, find a way to essentially break encryption. So uh, it's handed a loaded gun uh, to the regulator. And what Ofcom has said, uh, and you know, uh, we can choose to believe them or not believe them, is that uh, we're not going to use this power in this abusive way. And so, but, but, and then of course, this is the current authority. You know, in the next election, it could change, right? So in some sense, it's almost like you know, handing a you know, um, loaded gun to a kid because you know, these people, okay, I'm not saying they're kids, I'm saying you know, they don't understand technology very well. So it's, so it's handing a loaded gun to these people uh, and hopefully they don't pull the trigger. And the government argument is you know, um, because they say they're not going to pull the trigger and you know, hurt tech companies, uh, this is okay. By look at the decision, you know, this is insane, right? Um, wouldn't it just be better to not give them the loaded gun in the first place? Uh, but you know, apparently that argument uh, they didn't quite understand. So I think it's very dangerous because now, instead of the government setting the guardrails of what can and cannot happen in terms of protecting privacy, you've left it up to unelected bureaucrats, which can change based off of who is in government, uh, making decisions 
the fundamentally impact the privacy of everybody that lives in the, in the UK. But the problem is, like you mentioned, hackers. That's the issue, right? Because if the government can get access to the stuff, what's to stop someone else getting access to it? Yes, and, and that's exactly the problem. Because if Ofcom were to say mandate to a company like Proton, oh, now you have to break encryption, so we give access to the data, essentially creating a backdoor. Well, I've never seen a backdoor that only lets the good guys in, right? It doesn't exactly. exist. Uh, and that's, I think, fundamentally the problem here. Uh, and it's quite uh, worrying because, yeah, I actually have pretty good confidence in the current people at Ofcom, but uh, you cannot count on this. It's, it's simply too dangerous. Uh, and it's ultimately the legislator not taking responsibility. Because if you're in the House of Lords or in the Commons and you're writing this legislation, it is sort of your obligation to set the rules properly. And what they're essentially saying is, we're going to you know, pass this problem over to Ofcom, uh, and then if, if Ofcom does something crazy in the future, uh, there'll be a court case, so then we'll make the court system sorted out. Uh, and that's really a lot of uncertainty that I don't think is fair for businesses, it's not fair for consumers, and ultimately it's just really you know people that didn't spend the time to write good law. I mean, the, the, I've heard like Facebook, uh, WhatsApp, whatever, like end-to-end -end encryption are uh, threatening to pull out of the UK if this, if this gets pushed through. And I'm assuming it's going to be the same for you because you're not going to change your whole business model just because of one country. Yeah, well, uh, there's actually an analogy here. We have been approached in the past actually by another uh, regulator. It's uh, similar to Ofcom, but it's got a different name. And the, and the name is, uh, you know, Roskomnadzor, right? Uh, and for those that couldn't figure it out, that's a Russian regulator. And, you know, they gave us a, you know, kind of a detection order, which is similar to the order that, you know, Ofcom would be able to give us. Uh, and they said, you know, uh, you know dear Proton, uh, we noticed you have some users in Russia. Um, we would like you to store your data, uh, you know, in Russia and make it available to us upon request. Uh, and, you know, um, our answer, of course, was, uh, you know, uh, dear Russia, no thank you, right? Um, it's kind of insane because the UK is not Russia, but we're now in the same situation where something similar could actually happen in a Western democracy. Uh, and I don't see how I could give the UK a different answer to the ones that you know, I gave to Russia. Uh, you know, it's just simply not something that we believe in, not something that we can support, and fundamentally you know, a breach of human rights. It's a slippery slope as well, because the UK often leads this kind of stuff, um, or has in the past. Like if, if the UK can get away with it, get away with it in inverted commas, then a lot of other governments are gonna want the same thing. Yeah, and then the UK's government uh, argument, of course, is, oh, but, you know, we have the court system to safeguard against this, right? And and, and actually, um, that was the Russian argument as well, right? You know, Roskomnadzor said, by the way, if you don't agree, you can come to Moscow courts, uh, you know, on this date and argue, right? And I said, okay, well, first of all, I don't want to get poisoned. And, you know, if I show up, I already know what the judgment is going to be. So this is just a waste of my time, right? And the UK, you know, they say, oh, there's an independent court system. But actually, the courts are there to enforce the law. So if the law says certain things, uh, there's not much the court can do to actually change that. Uh, so I think this is, you know, um, so it feels a bit absurd that, you know, we're sitting here in 2023 and I'm, you know, kind of comparing Russia, uh, you know, uh, to the UK. But if you read the law and see what it says, well, it's really the same thing. It's really worrying because, you know, it's like, it doesn't just, the good thing is it doesn't just affect you. It affects big companies like Facebook and other companies yeah. who want to want to do the encryption. Um, and I mean, if they ever try and push this through, it's like, wow. I mean, it's, I think a lot of companies are going to want to leave the UK. Yeah, well, some people have already said that, that, that they're going to leave if it pushes through. So, you know, uh, let's see what happens. But I don't think it's a good development. And I think, uh, you know, um, it's the type of stuff that you would have expected out of Russia and China. But coming from the UK, it was really, I think, a surprise for many people. I'm obviously taking on the role of like a lot of, you know, a lot of the audience. And I think a lot of the audience will say, you know, cynically, well, what do you expect? Look at Snowden. 
it's proven that this has happened in the past, right? Yes, but Snowden was uh, kind of a different situation because you know in Snowden's case, it was that was simply taking what was there. It, it was sort of like you know you had all this communications, uh, it, it, it wasn't protected, uh, and it was just out for the open. And the NSA had a giant machine to scoop it all up. That was, of course, probably ethically and morally very questionable and shouldn't have happened. But uh, okay, fine, right? You know, we were negligent in not securing any of our communications. What this is doing is saying, well, now you have taken steps to secure communications. And I'm telling you, no, you can't do that. You can't encrypt. You cannot do end-to-end encryption. Uh, you must break your encryption for us. I find that in some sense a little bit worse because the first one, they were just taking what was out there. Now it's kind of saying everything must be out there. Uh, so it's even worse in a way, actually. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, let's get technical again. Um, public keys, if I connect to you, to you, how do I know it's your valid public key? <laughs> yeah, that's that's actually a, a really good question. Uh, and in, in most cases, uh, you can't actually know, you don't actually know. Uh, and this is the you know um, failure that I think happens in a lot of end encrypted systems is you need a trusted key that you get. You know, if, if you get served a fake uh, public key, uh, then you're essentially screwed. Then, then it's actually what they call a man-in-the-middle attack. Uh, and this actually happens you know, more often than you think. So there's two ways around this, right? Uh, you know, one way is called a TOFU, uh, which stands for you know, trust on first use, which is the first time you see it, you trust it, you pin it, and then if you see something different in the future, then you can at least be warned that it's different. And Proton actually implemented you know, a key pinning probably five or six years ago in order to get to you know tofu, right? Uh, but that's still not so great because on the first use, uh, you could maybe get intercepted the first time, right? It's still possible. And what we've done, and I think we're the only end-to-end encrypted uh, you know, email company in the space to have done this, is we recently launched something called uh, key transparency. And what it actually does is it takes all the public keys and it puts them on a blockchain because a blockchain is actually a pen-only, read-only public ledger. Then when you have key transparency enabled, uh, what the application will do, will do is when it receives a public key, it checks it against the entry on the blockchain to see if there's actually a match. And this way, even if you haven't seen the key before, you at least can check it against a public, non-editable uh, you know, a ledger to ensure that you have the right key. And this is one of the approaches for you know, um, solving the issue around you know, a web of trust, basically. And that's available now, right? That's available now, yeah. That, that's actually, uh, it was launched in beta, probably a month ago. And uh, you can actually go to your settings on the ProtonMail web app and just turn it on. Uh, so it does work. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's one of the things that I think that Proton did that probably a lot of people are not going to bother because it's, it's, a, it's kind of a, you know, um, a niche use case, right? You have to be sort of a, you know, a special threat model to really worry about this. But you know, Proton, today we have a lot of activists, a lot of dissidents, uh, you know, politicians, uh, business leaders, uh, you know, um, people that work in the NGO space. Uh, and yeah, I think uh, we, for these reasons, will get some of the probably you know uh, most advanced adversaries targeting our users. So this is why I think it's important that we add features like this. I'm glad you mentioned that, like the threat model. I think for a lot of people, however, they, their threat model might be. I'm not. I'm not an activist. I'm not going to. I haven't got governments coming after me. And this all sounds really complicated. Hey, I mean, I think that's an advantage of Proton, right? You, you guys have made it a lot easier than like. I mean, thinking back in the old days, PGP and all this kind of craziness. Yeah, well, I think the PGP, what PGP taught us over the course of you know twenty years, is that one click is too much. And one of our big innovations was re- was we removed that click. And if you look at something like you know uh, key transparency, the way that people used to do this uh, maybe twenty years ago 
was we would have these called you know PGP signing parties, where a bunch of people got together physically and exchanged keys and fingerprints and signatures, right? Uh, and the fact that you can do basically that and get that same sort of security by just clicking a single toggle in your ProtonMail in a web app, uh, that's, I think, a huge innovation in user experience. And that is, I think, the main challenge of privacy. Because I've never met someone who, if I ask them, do you want more privacy and security? The answer is no. The answer is always yes. But it's, you know, what do you give up? And I really think that if services like Proton are able to achieve the user experience, or what you give up is literally nothing of the user experience, there's no reason anybody would pick Gmail over uh, ProtonMail. And I think, uh, you know, the way to win in the long run is actually to make privacy as easy as possible. I mean, that's a problem because it sounds like a lot of work. I mean, I'm glad you differentiated between <laughs> being anonymous and being private yeah. because anonymous, being anonymous is a lot of hard work. Yeah, but uh, being private is simply just finding, you know, uh, service providers, companies who are willing to adopt that business model and, uh, you know, making it as simple as possible so that literally anybody can use it. And, you know, for me, the test was, can my parents use it? Can my, you know, grandparents use it? And if it wasn't that easy, then we didn't meet the bar. So that that option, you just tick it, and that's it. It won't break. Uh, it won't. It won't stop people who haven't got it enabled sending me sending me emails and stuff, will it? Uh, no, no. It it, it, um, it it works automatically. You turn it on, uh, and uh, that I think is the beauty of it, right? It's you know yeah, no more key setting parties. Thing, yeah. One tick and and it's done. I want to talk about logs and VPN versus Torbit, and then I want to talk about some of the other products because there's there's other mm. issues to raise with like ease of use. Um, what does it mean when you say there's no logs? Well, what no logs on VPN means is when you catch a VPN server, the VPN server, in theory, can see all your activity. Because again, TCP IP, right? You're passing all your requests to the server. So the server can see you know, the destination and the origin. And if it wanted to, uh, it could actually you know, record all that information. And VPN is a bit different from encrypted email. Because you know, when you look at ProtonMail, end-to-end encryption, well, first of all, end-to-end encryption uh, you know, is end-to-end, right? Uh, and then also everything is open source. Uh, you know, all the applications are um, do encryption on client side. You could um, build a client yourself and run it on your own device. Uh, and you can get pretty good assurances of end to end. But there is no concept of end to end. You know, um, anonymity when it comes to TCP IP. Uh, you know, the two ends are there, and then they're connected, and there's no anonymity there. So no logs in VPN. It's actually not a mathematical guarantee. It's a promise. It's a promise of the VPN provider, uh, which is why fighting the credible and reputable providers is so important. There's so many cases where you know it's, it's no logs, but then there's a lot of you know um, fine print. You know, maybe it's no logs until we receive a national security letter, no logs until the FBI comes knocking. You know, no logs until uh, you know it becomes too expensive for us to not comply with the subpoena, right? Uh, but the great thing about no logs in Proton is because we're in Switzerland, Swiss law is very very clear. There is no way today to compel a provider like ProtonVPN to start logging, uh, and no mechanism for the government to change that. Uh, and I think uh, you know that's why no logs. It is quite important to kind of differentiate different levels of no logs. But you know we can actually say very confidently no logs without fine print. I love that because I mean, you know, I'm in the UK, and I mean this new law is is like got a lot of people worried. Um, other a lot of people I talk to are based in the US. I mean, the advantage of you, is this the reason why you, you set it up in Switzerland? I mean, the advantage is it's in Switzerland with all these special, well, I had to say, more strict rules. Well, in the beginning, uh, we were at CERN, which is a you know, yeah. Swiss uh, research lab on the Swiss-French border. So we were, exactly, you know, yeah. I, I, I think we were here. But then very soon afterwards, the question was asked, well, if we're going to you know, be working on privacy, what is the best country to do it in? And I can tell you, Switzerland isn't perfect, right? There are a lot of things, uh, you know, um, 
I don't like. If it was perfect, we wouldn't have sued the government. Uh, and actually, we actually won that lawsuit. Uh, so, you know, um, so I guess it shows that Switzerland, you know, can still change through the courts uh, if, if you want to. But if you go around sort of the entire world and you look at all the privacy legislation, Switzerland actually, in many ways, is one of the better ones. There are probably a few small places around that you could find, of course, a bit better, but you're not going to have the infrastructure. You're not going to have the rule of law. You're not going to have the you know, um, control, right? So, you know, there's some people that uh, you know, go to um, British Virgin Islands because it's apparently it's very, very lax there. But that's not a developed economy. That's the type of thing where you know, maybe the Chinese make a very big investment and then the laws change, right? Uh, so to find the combination of stability, uh, neutrality, but also the very strong you know, um, privacy culture and the strong existing laws, it's very, very important. Uh, and what I like about Switzerland as well is there's the notion of direct democracy. If you don't like the law, you can actually take it up to a public vote. And because there's such a strong privacy culture here, it's very, very hard to push through things that are you know, just bad for privacy. But let's say I'm still, you know, it's just like, I, I like the way you phrased it or you know, said about like threat models. What about Tor? Is Tor not better than a VPN? So, okay, let's say from a anonymity standpoint, uh, I would say yes, it's better than a VPN, uh, for sure. The objective truth is that uh, Tor is more you know, anonymous than a VPN, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. full stop. Uh, and, you know, um, probably I'm the only, you know, uh, owner of a VPN company that would say this, uh, exactly, but, uh, you yeah. know, um, I'm a scientist, it's the truth, it, it is what it is, right? Um, but then again, why don't I use Tor? Why do I use Proton VPN instead of Tor, right? The reason for that is my threat model isn't actually that I think you know um, the feds are coming after me and they're wiretapping all my connections and they're going to you know um, uh, do crazy things against me, right? And for most use cases, a VPN, well, it's faster, uh, it's more reliable, uh, and it has you know um, much better performance. Uh, it can be much more stable. It has much more features, like the ability to block ads and, and, and block malware and, and things of that nature, right? Uh, so for my threat model, actually the VPN can hit all the needs I, you know, um, would require. And um, yes, it's true that my traffic, uh, you know, passes through uh, a centralized server, in this case, Proton server, or if you use our secure core, it passes through two servers, right? So there's multiple hops as well. And it's true that, you know, something that is centralized is from a technical standpoint, maybe not as good as something that's, that is more decentralized like Tor. Uh, but given the strength of no logs policies, uh, you know, in Switzerland and the legal protections around that, I am still sufficiently confident that Proton VPN can protect my anonymity, and that the additional, uh, you know, um, benefits that Tor may provide uh, doesn't maybe outweigh the additional usability, you know, um, downsides. Uh, so for me, actually, VPN is okay. And I think for most people, that's also the case. But there are definitely going to be some people in some cases where I would say you should use Tor and not use VPN. And, you know, there have been activists and journalists that, you know, um, we've worked with who have actually given them that recommendation. I mean, it's, I'm glad you said that. I mean, it's a, it's a great answer. The, um, the, the problem with Tor is, number one, like you said, it's so slow. And a lot of websites actually block it. So if you try and go yeah, to, like, yes. do normal things, yeah. it can be a problem. Yeah. And, and, and to be honest, you know, we like Tor a lot. And actually, uh, you know, every year, Proton is probably giving around 1 million uh, you know, uh, euros per year to support different, uh, you know, um, organizations. And Tor is one of the organizations that, you know, we support quite a bit in funding their development. Uh, so, um, you know, I don't view Tor and VPN as uh, competition, right? I view them as complementary tools that we want to have in the overall, you know, uh, in the overall cybersecurity toolkit because there's different tools with different needs and we need them both. But I, I think I saw you can use Tor with Proton, right? 
Uh, yes, it, it is possible to connect through Tor on Proton. So yes, that, that's that's a possibility. There, there is a Tor over VPN built into our uh, system. Oh, so, okay. So, the, so number one, I can use a VPN just like it is, but then I can also run Tor over the VPN if I want yes, like extra yes, security, yes. right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Although to be honest with you, in that in that case, you might as well just use Tor, right? <laughs> now, another concern people might have is one of the reasons why it's so hard to move away from Google is I have my calendar, I have my email, I have yeah. like a Google Drive. Mm -hmm. So is it, I, I, is that the reason why Proton is, is, has got more offerings than just like email as it started originally? Yeah, I think uh, today the average consumer is used to ecosystems. Ecosystems have taken over, you know, uh, you know Apple, Microsoft, uh, Facebook, Google, the other ecosystems. So the result of that is people sort of expect ecosystems when they come online. And if you don't provide that, it becomes very hard for the major users to switch. But what we've done now is we make the switch easier and easier. Uh, it's very interesting. There was actually a, a recent article in the Washington Post where you know a journalist uh, made the switch, um, and she used an easy switch tool. And the funny thing is, you know, she found that it was so easy that she was so surprised. She wrote an article about it, talking about how easy it was. Uh, so thanks, to, so thanks to GDPR, uh, Google is forced to expose certain APIs and make data portable. So if you want to switch, say, Gmail to ProtonMail, it's literally a few clicks, you know, click a button and does it automatically. So it's often a lot easier over time, uh, but you do need to have an entire ecosystem because if you just move over, you know, your emails, but not your contacts and not your calendar, uh, it usually doesn't work. Uh, so that is indeed the vision. Uh, and it's difficult, right? Because you want to do all this without the billions of advertising revenue that Google has with a much smaller team. Uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, we didn't do this because it was easy. We did this because it's the right thing to do. So in other words, if I I can get my emails moved across, I can get my calendar moved across, I yeah. can get my documents moved across. Is, that, is it, did I understand that correctly? You can't do the documents and files yet, um, but you can do the contacts, uh, emails, and calendaring. Uh, and of course, documents and files uh, is the next step. This is this is the next place where Proton Drive is going to go. I just I spoke to someone recently who had these uh, like uh, just a normal person, not a technical person, for lack of a better word, and they had this issue where people took over their accounts, and it seems to still happen. It's amazing that it's happening, you know, even in 2024, where people are reusing their passwords. Um, so you've got a product that solves that problem as well. Yes, yes, we we launched something recently called Proton Pass to address that specific uh, use case. Uh, now, many people have you know wondered. There's password managers out there already. So you know, what does Proton yeah. bring to the table? Why, why exactly. even bother, right? Uh, and the kind of insight that we had, what motivated us to do this is, I've had my data you know uh, leaked probably in a half dozen data breaches just in the past five six years. Uh, you know, um, it happens basically once a year, right? Uh, uh, you know, there's some company that got leaked, and when a leak happens. Generally, uh, there's a couple of things that get leaked. One, uh, there's my password. And the password, because I follow password good best practices, is uh, you know, uh, usually unique, only used for that service. Uh, and you know, if you don't do that today, always do that, right? You know, only never reuse passwords. And because the companies getting hacked are usually not terribly incompetent, uh, you know, um, it's, it's improved in the past couple of years. Generally, the password that is leaked is a hash, usually hash with bcrypt or you know, um, SHA-256 or, or something reasonable. And then the other piece of information that is leaked other than my password is then usually my email address. Of the two piece things that are leaked, my email versus the you know, hash unique password, actually the email is the one that's much more painful. Because the password, number one, is unique. And number two, it takes me one second to change, right? Uh, the email, I can't change it. It's my email. I have the contact, you know, a thousand people tell them about my new email. 
Uh, and once it's out there, I get spam, I get phishing, I get to your malware, all sorts of stuff you know, gets opened up. So the kind of realization that we made was in a data breach, it's not the password that is a problem. It's actually the email being leaked that is a bigger issue. So what ProtonPass does that is unique than other password managers is when you go to a new site, it doesn't just propose you a unique secure password. It also proposes for you an email alias, which is a unique email that is only used by this service. So when there is a data leak in the future, which is really a matter of when, not a matter of if, uh, I can, you know, of course, change the password, but that leak will no longer contain my real email, but just my email alias. Uh, so I think that is why we went to that space. And I think it's a very powerful concept because uh, you know, um, that is actually the data that is more valuable in the database. It's the email and not so much the password. Yeah, I mean, I can, I can say it because of who I am. And I, I, I don't have a conflict of interest, but uh, LastPass was a, was a nightmare. I mean, that breach. And I think a lot of people have recommended, uh, and including me, not to use them. Um, that's the nightmare, right? If you, you, you shouldn't reuse passwords. Unfortunately, a lot of people still reuse passwords, so we can use the Pass product from Proton to you know, encourage people to use unique passwords. But the breach is a problem, right? Yeah, well, I can speak about LastPass. Uh, and, uh, you know, okay, maybe I shouldn't talk about competition, right? Because technically, <laughs> I'm, a, ten, technically I'm, I'm, I'm a competitor now. Um, but on the other hand, um, what I said about them, I said before we were competing with them, so maybe it's still fair game, right? You know, um, the issue wasn't so much the breach. And I say this because uh, everybody's going to get breached sooner or later. Uh, someday, Proton is also going to get breached, right? Uh, it's, it's not a matter of, you know, uh, if, it's a matter of when. Uh, and it'll probably happen sooner rather than later, right? The default has to be that you assume a breach is going to happen. And this is the part where I think LastPass didn't do such a good job because they didn't encrypt the data in a way that considered that possibility. Uh, what, what do I mean by that? Uh, well, first of all, the way the data was encrypted and hashed uh, was actually not done in a very strong way. So in fact, what you see now is people got, you know, um, the encrypted data dump uh, from LastPass. They've been working on cracking it, and they're starting to crack more and more accounts, uh, which is really a big problem because you know it's pretty easy to crack um, given the way that they set it up. Uh, but also, the encryption was also not complete enough. So you know, sure, maybe the password is hashed, but uh, you know the website that they went to, right? Uh, and that's kind of bad because if people and could see data, the website yeah. that you accessed, yeah. maybe you have uh, some websites in there that you don't want the, the world to know, uh, but you know, if it's in there in plain text, then people will see it, right? And, and, th and that can be very embarrassing. You can imagine some politicians in their LastPass account and they accessed you know, maybe some websites they shouldn't have and had handles there. Could be pretty embarrassing, right? Uh, so I think, I think that was the issue, was maybe the mindset wasn't about um, let's prepare for the breach because we know it's going to happen. Uh, so they sort of left some holes in the security model, which really created a lot of problems for people who use the service. And I think ProtonPass, you know, we don't want to make that mistake, right? So you know, everything, including the sites that you visit, are actually encrypted, and the hashing algorithm is done in a very strong and robust way to avoid some of those issues. I see that one of the biggest, I, I, the, the cyber people I talk to always hammer on this drum, 2FA. Um, you've got a new product, right, that tries to address this. It's not a new product but more like a feature uh, called a Proton Sentinel. I would say they're not the same thing. Uh, you still need 2FA. 2FA is something that I absolutely recommend that everybody uh, use, but the reality is a lot of people are not going to use it. It's simply too much of a pain, too much of a exactly. hassle. You know, as much as we try to push it, adoption never really gets above 5-6%, right? And this is with repeated emails, repeated you know, uh, call to actions, doesn't really work. Even if you have 2FA, it's still possible with sophisticated phishing, you know, especially targeting politicians, journalists, activists, that an attacker 
is able to somehow compromise 2FA, somehow, you know, um, replicate the 2FA and, you know, uh, bypass that as well. So what we sort of realized is we cannot really expect people to not get fished. We cannot really expect them to not get, you know, local compromise on their device. We cannot really expect them to even enable 2FA because uh, that is, you know, um, one click too much, right? The best thing that you, need, you can do in this case is you need to be able to protect them even if they're breached, even if they're compromised. And that was the concept created put on Sentinel. So what Sentinel is doing is it combines machine learning algorithms, which uh, given Proton's large user base, are able to scan you know, hundreds of millions of login attempts and really learn the patterns of attackers. But machines by themselves are not uh, so smart, despite what we try to do, right? You know, AI, as good as it is, still doesn't really beat humans on many things. So it's combining the machine learning algorithms together with a team of human analysts uh, to add human intelligence to put the machine's output. And what it's trying to do is, if an attacker has your password and maybe even your 2FA, uh, Sentinel can still detect if that login doesn't look like you. And then it can block that login or give more difficult challenges for you know, the attacker to try to solve before getting access to your account. Uh, and it actually works. You know, we, we've, since it launched maybe uh, three or four months ago, we've already been able to block 5,000 account takeover attempts that otherwise would have been successful. And the reason I think it works is because it's so easy. To enable it, it's uh, just like key transparency. It's just one click, it's on, and it starts working. Uh, and I think that's how easy security has to be if we want it to be able to be adopted by you know, more people. Andy, the big question, 2024, is how do I get privacy? So perhaps you can give us like your top tips or like a roadmap, because it's easier. You know, I can't do like a big bang for privacy perhaps, but maybe some steps like how do I get from I'm using Google for everything. They know everything about me. How do I get to like being private? Yeah. Well, if you're talking about like you know uh, the privacy New Year re- New Year New Year resolutions for people, uh, you know after they've eaten all the uh, Christmas uh, you know uh, food and they're sitting around thinking about how I become safe uh, next year, uh, I think there is a kind of a very you know simple uh, roadmap, right? Uh, you know, um, number one, don't use Gmail. Uh, you know, as your I mean, you know, yeah, you know, I'm not saying you have to use ProtonMail, but you know, use anything but Gmail. Because if you are not logged in to Google all the time, Google doesn't have a profile on you, and you would have escaped their surveillance system. Uh, and that is, you know, uh, not an easy thing to do, but it's the thing that probably pays the biggest dividends because Google's entire surveillance model depends on that Google account and that Gmail. So that's the first thing to do. Uh, the second thing I would recommend is, you know, uh, don't use Google Chrome. There's no reason why you need to use Google Chrome in this day and age uh, because there's other options out there. If I don't use Chrome, which browser do I use? I use Brave. I find it fantastic. Is that the one you recommend, or are there, are there any other browsers, or you know what browser would you recommend? Yeah, in this day and age, there's no reason to actually use uh, Google Chrome anymore. Uh, there is uh, Brave, that's an option. There's also Firefox, uh, and switching browsers is actually pretty easy. So I would just you know uh, do that. Uh, and if you do just those first two steps, uh, you've actually already gotten most of the way there. In fact, you can even keep using Google Search, but if you're not logged into Google when you're using Google Search, Google doesn't have information to tie to you, right? So, so that's, that's a big thing. Now, if you want to go further, uh, you could, of course, uh, switch Google Search for DuckDuckGo or some of the alternatives out there. Uh, that's also a possibility. Do you have uh, any recommendations? Because a lot of people say DuckDuckDuck, sorry, DuckDuckGo is also not as great as it used to be because there's controversy about them as well. But do you, yeah, do, yeah. Do you still recommend them? Or? You know, Search is really the the last natural monopoly on the internet uh, because, you know, DuckDuckGo, the privacy is, of course, better than Google, but some people will say, oh, the search quality isn't quite there, right? I would say if you use Google search, but you're not logged in uh, and it's not tied to your Gmail account, actually, 
sure, Google can see what you're searching. Uh, but uh, it's not tied to your profile. So maybe that's not so bad. Uh, so so I, I think if you, if you already you know, uh, switched the email, but you keep using Google search, you've already made quite a bit of progress already in your privacy journey. And let's say you also use a VPN while using Google search. Well, Google has even less way to actually you know, link that back to you. Uh, so so I, I think those are kind of the obvious steps. Uh, a VPN, well, a VPN today, you know, they're so easy to use. Um, they're so transparent. Uh, it doesn't know your internet connection. You might as well use it uh, as well. Right, uh, and, and then these would be privacy tips. And from a security standpoint, I think using something like uh, you know a password manager is uh, also very useful because you know passwords uh, you want strong unique passwords, and the password manager is the only way that you can, that you can achieve that. And if you use you know um, Proton Pass, well, you also get email aliases for every single website that you sign up to, uh, and this is additional protection against data breaches as well. Uh, but uh, yeah, I think this is really kind of you know the very you know easy ways to start. Then the other information that you have that's probably very sensitive is probably your documents, you know, your photos, your passport, your tax forms, things of that, things of that nature. And you know, um, but of course, moving that could be more difficult. I would say if you use an encrypted file storage system, uh, maybe it's Proton Drive or one of the other options out there. This also helps you to you know de-Google your life and remove your information from Google. So that's also I think something that I would recommend, uh, maybe as a you know third or fourth step. And I think that's it, right? Uh, you know, um, I'm not going to say don't use social media because that's um, unrealistic these days. Uh, but obviously, you know, be aware that everything that you use, you put on there is going to be someday leaked. So, you know, I just keep that in mind. I love the honesty. I mean, I love that you, what you said. It's um, default position should be you're going to get hacked or something's going to get leaked. So how do you counter that? And I think these are these are great, great starting points. Andy, that's just the basics, right? So, like, that's what I might tell my mom to do or... I mean, even for her, some of this might be too complicated. Um, but at least it's a good start. Now, what about someone who's serious about privacy? Well, if you want to take it a step further, uh, the place where privacy usually falls apart is typically the devices. You know, devices that get compromised or vendors of devices that you cannot really trust. Uh, and uh, today, you probably have either an Android or, or an iOS device. And you know, this is actually you know, a surveillance machine that you keep in your pocket and take with you all the time. Uh, so I think it's very, very important you know, if you want to take the next step to get off of these platforms. Um, now, it's a much more difficult user experience. Uh, it's going to be you know, much more tricky. It's uh, you know, looking at things like you know, Lineage OS or Graphene OS, you know, these, these, these uh, you know, um, more fringe uh, you know, mobile operating systems. Which uh, you know uh, can work, but uh, you need to be prepared to pay a much higher user experience cost uh, to you know um, do things differently, right? And this could be getting your apps from F-Droid. but um, and, and this is why I think mobile. It, it's it's really a pity that today mobile is so dominated by two companies that really you know um, you know that, that 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 really use mobile devices as surveillance tools. Um, but that's kind of the obvious uh, next step. Now, also if you look at today's you know default Windows and Mac OS settings. Uh, it's pretty scary. Exactly, it's um, crazy. The, 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 the type of things that uh, Google is doing, uh, not Google, uh, Microsoft is doing on you know, uh, Windows, uh, you know, especially now with their different AI uh, you know, um, co-pilot things, right? it's pretty terrifying. And uh, Microsoft is really no better than Google in, in this respect. Uh, luckily, there are you know, open source Linux distributions, uh, which are you know, very, very good. Even Ubuntu is you know, good enough in most cases. Uh, so you know, for the more advanced people, 
I would say also switch off of Windows, switch off of Mac OS, you know, go to Linux because there, you know, uh, you know, there is in this events built into the operating system. But um, yeah, these are much harder steps, right? These are things that require you to change your device, uh, change your operating system, change the way that you work. But if you really want to, you know, take the next step, uh, you have to do this. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, so Gmail is the worst. So that would be like, go to ProtonMail uh, or another encrypted. I mean, we're going to, I'm just going to use a Proton because, of, I mean, I'm talking to you and I, I use Proton myself anyway. So ProtonMail, uh, use Brave as my browser, DuckDuckGo or, or another search engine, use a VPN, so Proton VPN, Password Manager. Um, and the great thing about your solution is you get the aliases. Uh, yeah. use, use encrypted storage from Proton. Um, Social media, I agree with you. It's really hard, you know, in today's world. You, you, you can say you hate Twitter or you hate what X as it's called or LinkedIn or whatever, but that's how the world connects these days, right? Yeah, so no choice there. And then I think uh, then afterwards, it's, uh, it's your mobile and desktop operating systems. Um, but, that's, but that's a significantly big step up in terms of difficulty. But let's assume that that's what I want because I think a lot of people watching are like, give us the, give us the, the like, I wouldn't call it more extreme, but more advanced um, so get off iOS. Um, I've heard you like talk about Apple versus Google. Are they both as bad as each other, right? So Android, iOS, just as bad. I personally wouldn't trust either one. Uh, and you know, uh, I think uh, there was a recent report from a couple of days ago about you know how the U.S. government was spying on push notifications on you know um, on, on iOS and Android devices. Uh, so in the end, these deals, these type of things do happen. Uh, so I, I don't feel either one is very good. If you, if you were, you know, uh, really wanting to be off the grid uh, and really wanted to be, you know, secure, uh, I would actually go to one of the open source Android distributions that are out there. Um, and it's actually, um, I don't want to say they are because these things are constantly changing. These projects are constantly, you know, um, appearing and, 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 and disappearing. But um, one of the unofficial Android uh, forks is probably what you want to use. Uh, and then definitely Linux for the desktop operating system. Yeah, I mean, I, I've done graphene videos. Um, graphene seems to be a good choice. It's like not yeah, too difficult, yeah. um, but gives you a lot of security. Sorry, go on. Yeah, it, it's uh, it's pretty difficult. Let's put it that way, right? If, if you For wanna, a normal you know, person, uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, if you want to get the same full experience, it's pretty difficult. Um, graphene actually was somebody that we supported uh, last year in, in our um, in, in the grants that we give out. So we financially uh, backed them to you know try to speed up development. Uh, and I think it's a good project, but... Um, it would be, you know, lying to say you didn't have to make a significant user experience uh, sacrifice uh, to, you know, switch to that. Yeah, I mean, because that's always the problem is like the apps, right? It's um, you get you get all of these, like, sort of I'd say more niche like stuff on the on the on the handsets because it's either iOS or Android. You get these others, and then you you lose functionality. Um, but you can get a lot of it to work, right? Even though it's you have to jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, yeah, the biggest problem here is actually the Google Play push notification services. And this is very difficult because alternatives uh, just don't work as well. And if you use alternatives, uh, actually, there's a big issue on battery life as well. Uh, so, you know, um, Proton is also working on alternatives, you know, applications that don't require that. But we know, but, but, but we know already the battery life is going to be worse, right? Uh, um, because, because the way Google sets it up, and this is why it's you know quite difficult to do. Uh, you know the, the compromise that we do instead right now is we use end-to-end encryption on on the push notifications, uh, and this is uh, quite useful because you know yeah you have no way to escape Google, but uh, at least all the data that goes through Google uh, they cannot read. That's great. I mean the hard one is if I'm using so I'm just going to give pushback if I'm using Ubuntu, I'll use Microsoft Word right and Excel and all those programs. Yeah, uh, but uh, you might be able to use the web version of those. Uh, and, you know, uh, there's OpenOffice, but uh, of course, uh, there's a big functionality gap. 
and and this is why I think these next steps are, are much more difficult. Uh, but if you've already changed your other online services, I think that already goes you know quite far. Uh, and you know uh, it's it, it's like most things in life, right? Uh, you know um, the ten percent easy stuff can give you eighty percent of the way there. And then the last, uh, or ninety percent of the way there, and the last ten percent is ninety percent of the effort. But I mean, it's. I'm glad you said, like I mentioned earlier, right in the beginning, you made the distinction between being anonymous versus being private. Um, because yeah. if you want to be anonymous, that's the next level of craziness that you have to do, yeah. or hard work that you have to do. Andy, one of the topics that always comes up is about messaging apps. Facebook says that WhatsApp is end-to-end -end encrypted, but what's your take on like, is that is that a good app to use? Like if I want to send messages, iMessage or WhatsApp, or is there something better? Well, uh, WhatsApp does have end-to-end -end encryption. Uh, that's, you know, um, that is true. Uh, the problem is it's also got uh, Facebook and all the baggage that comes with that. So, uh, you know, WhatsApp for Facebook is essentially a tool for them to collect more information, uh, you know, um, link to your Facebook data and other profiles. Uh, in order to you know better serve advertising on their other platforms, so ultimately it is a piece of a surveillance machine that today is called a Meta. So it's not you know my preferred messenger of choice, but on the other hand, it kind of has become the only option because messaging today is uh, centralized. Uh, you know all the services. It's not like SMTP where email services talk to each other. It's uh, a centralized system where you need the network effects because if everybody's on WhatsApp. Even if you don't want to use it and you don't like it, you don't really have a choice. So what I think needs to happen is we need messaging to go the direction of email, to get you a system that is fully federated, where anybody can run their own server and all the different services speak the same language so they can interoperate, so they can interoperate and communicate with each other. And when we get to that type of uh, you know, world for messaging, uh, then actually you know, we can still talk to people on WhatsApp without using WhatsApp. And this is something that is very likely to come in the next couple of years because the European Union has passed a new law called the Digital Markets Act that actually mandates that. So if that were to happen, I do think there's a bright future for chat, um, which today, unfortunately, is dominated by WhatsApp. But in the meantime, I could use Signal, right? Signal's good. Yeah, yeah. Personally, I use Signal. Uh, that, that's the one I think is the best out of all the options out there today. Uh, but, uh, you know, Signal... It's a good service, right? But Signal also has a problem of, uh, and all chat has, has the same problem, which is how do you make it profitable? How do you make it sustainable? The funny thing is there are sort of uh, you know three well-known encrypted messaging services right now. There's uh, WhatsApp, uh, there's Signal, uh, and there's uh, Telegram. And the one thing they have in common, all three of them, is that they're all subsidized by billionaires. Uh, you know, it's uh, Brian Acton, who was a billionaire from WhatsApp, uh, which is now uh, you know backing Signal. It's uh, Zuck on WhatsApp, and then it's uh, Pavel Durov, which you know, coincidentally is a social media guy from Russia that does Telegram. Now, I think um, for chat to really be independent, for chat to really be scalable, to be you know, um, working in, around for a long time, we need to have independent business models. Because you know, um, if any of these billionaires someday decide they don't want to do this anymore, uh, then we're kind of screwed. But I mean, hopefully that uh, EU law will come in, and then perhaps Proton can create a messaging app. Yeah, I think I think that would be great, right? If we yeah. get to a world where uh, you know um, you can still have a competitive product without achieving WhatsApp scale and network effects, um, then you know then anybody can enter that space, and that would actually uh, you know open up a lot a lot of possibilities. Okay, worry that a lot of people have is AI. AI is eating jobs. AI will take away all my privacy. What's your take on AI? Is it good? Is it bad? Is it going to help us be more private or worse? Yeah, there's many different takes on this. 
And uh, so, uh, you know, Meredith, she's the, she's the, she's the uh, president of the Signal Foundation. You know, I, I think um, had a quote where she said, you know, AI is surveillance. Actually, uh, I think she's right. Uh, unfortunately, AI is surveillance because what does AI require? AI requires massive data sets, people to train the data sets on, uh, and then more data to feed the machine. So AI is unfortunately likely in the near term to accelerate the you know, decline in privacy online. And uh, that is, you know, that, that is very unfortunate, but there is one thing that saves us here. Uh, and what saves us is something known as a Moore's Law. Moore's Law is from, you know, Gordon Moore of Intel. He had a saying that, uh, you know, um, every 18 months processing power will double. Uh, and it was kind of a crazy prediction when he made it in the 70s, but it's kind of been true since then. And AI today requires massive server farms. Everything has to be done, you know, uh, on these huge machines, huge data center farms. Uh, processing massive data sets. But if Moore's law is true, actually what we will find is our devices are get, will get more and more powerful. So it will be possible in the future to do more and more you know, um, on-device AI. So it will, it will be possible to actually use AI algorithms to benefit from AI without requiring your data to be put on a centralized cloud. Uh, so I think you know, as chips get faster and faster, it will also be possible to build privacy-respecting AI, but it's going to take longer. So I know a lot of people watching might know this, but just perhaps you can explain why do we need encryption in email on the clients um, and explain perhaps with SNTP and the problems with like traditional email. Yeah, so SNTP is one of the oldest protocols on the internet that's still around. It was actually first written down in the, you know, in the, in the mid-80s actually. And back in those days, uh, you know, the idea of sensitive information in emails, the idea of you know, e-commerce, these things were all kind of foreign concepts, right? Uh, so SNTP was not designed at all with encryption in mind. It was a tool that uh, scientists were using to share non-confidential scientific data. Now it's used for your e-banking and these other crazy things. That's the reason why actually uh, email wasn't built for privacy and security. It, it honestly wasn't. Uh, and what Proton does with OpenPGP is actually to put an encryption layer on top of SNTP, which cannot be changed to have end-to-end encryption. Uh, now, people will also ask the question, well, why are we still using today a protocol back in the 80s that is you know, insecure, buggy, and you know, not great? And I would say this is both the uh, blessing and the curse of email. Uh, email, if you think about it from just the number standpoint, is actually the greatest and most successful communication tool that mankind has ever devised. It is the most ubiquitous communication tool that we have in the world today. And why is that? Well, evil success, in my opinion, is because it's federated. Anybody can run a server, anybody can communicate with any other server, and anybody can have it. Uh, nobody owns the email protocol. Uh, it's a market where everybody can, can participate. And that is uh, you know, um, the key to email's uh, success. But it's also a curse, because if I want to update email protocol, if I want to update SMTP to, say, natively speak encryption, now I need every single server in the world to update. Otherwise, you break the, you break the ability to, 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 talk, to uh, you know, communicate and talk with each other. Ironically, the thing that made email so successful is the same exact thing that makes it impossible to update email you know, ever. Right? It, it hasn't happened in 20 years, in 30 years. It's not going to happen in the future. So what Proton has done is we we have simply recognized that email SMTP is an imperfect protocol. Unfortunately, no way to change that. So we've done the best that we can to layer encryption on top of it because it's still worth securing, even if you cannot change the fundamental protocol to make it more secure from the bottom up. 
So in other words, you're using PGP, but you're making it simple, not like the old days when it was so insanely difficult. Yes, exactly. Um, and not just using PGP, but also modernizing PGP. Because PGP, if you recall, was uh, you know done by Phil Zimmerman back in the early 90s. Uh, and that's had you know 30 years to gather dust as well. Uh, so if you look at OpenPGP today that Proton is uh, you know building on and actually co- continuing to advance at the IETF, uh, it's in many ways not so recognizable compared to the PGP of old. It's been much more modernized, much, much more secure, uh, and much easier to use. So uh, it's uh, you know, it's still called PGP, but maybe only just a name. It's the the the, the guts inside have been have have uh, updated quite a bit in, in the last couple of years. The problem with Proton, right, versus Google is Google is free. So do I have to pay to use Proton products like Proton Mail or Proton VPN? Almost all of our users do not pay us, in fact, uh, because uh, we have a premium business model. And the reason for this is we believe very strongly that privacy is a fundamental human right. And that's only possible to support if it's actually free. Uh, so how does Proton actually sustain itself? How do, how do we you know, uh, make money to keep the business going? Uh, it's a freemium business model. Uh, you can use it for free, but if you want more storage, more features, uh, you know, um, some of the additional products, uh, then you can pay us a monthly fee to get some of the additional uh, features. And most people do not pay for that because they don't need that. Uh, but the percentage that do pay is actually sufficient to make the model sustainable. And what also helps Proton grow at the same time is catering to business customers. Because while I cannot charge consumers a lot of money, every business user on Proton actually does pay. And that is in some way subsidizing the consumer uh, you know, our products. And that's really important because a lot of the, the issue with open source products or projects is they often don't make enough money to be sustainable long-term. Yes, and that was the fate that I think you know, befalls you know, most organizations. You know, I, I think if I look at the privacy uh, open source companies out there, um, none of them are you know, what I consider to be sustainable, right? Uh, you, know, you have a Signal, which is uh, Brian Acton's money, uh, and you know some donations here and there. Uh, you have uh, Mozilla, which uh, you know, oh, it's kind of a, it's not really a secret, but you know Mozilla is funded by Google today, right? Almost all the money comes from Google, uh, which is uh, not really sustainable because uh, the hand that feeds you is also yeah. the one that is that is strangling you to death. Yeah. Uh, not a good situation to be in. Uh, so for Proton, our goal really was to find a business model that could be sustainable, because without that, the rest of the mission really doesn't work. Uh, and in 2016, we made a big pivot. We went, we, in the early days, Proton was completely donation-based. And going from a donation-based service to a subscription business, uh, that was a big leap of faith. And I think by being able to cross that bridge and make it work, we've really proven in the past you know, five, six years that privacy can be a business. And I think that's a very important achievement because it will hopefully open the door for others to follow in this path. Andy, I really want to thank you for you know spending so much time with me and covering a whole bunch of things. But what I really appreciate is number one that you're technical. It's it's so nice to talk to someone who's a CEO but you know understands all the technical stuff and that you're really honest. You're not trying to like sell Proton. I really appreciate you sharing you know your experience and advice. Thanks so much. Yes, it was really a pleasure to be on the show and uh, looking forward to you know uh, talking more in the future. I look forward to it. Thanks. 